Hi, welcome to the Integrative Health Podcast with Dr. Jen Flegar. This podcast is meant to educate and empower about important health topics. Dr. Jen's passion is to get to the root cause of disease and prevent illness. She will also feature guests who are experts in their fields and experiences in all things related to integrative medicine. Hello, this is Dr. Jen. Welcome back to the Integrative Health Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe and give a five-star review and share with your friends. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Integrative Health Podcast with Dr. Jen. Today, I have another Dr. Jen, Dr. Jen with two N's, so Dr. Jen Simmons. I actually saw her at A4M. She's in her cute little pink suit. And then I ran into her at the airport and I was like, hey, I would love for you to get on my podcast. So it's this is a real treat. So Dr. Jen Simmons started her professional career as Philadelphia's first fellowship trained breast surgeon. After spending 17 years as Philadelphia's top breast surgeon, her own illness led her to discover functional medicine. So in armored with the concept of creating health rather than killing disease, she left traditional medicine and her esteemed surgical position in 2019 and founded Real Health MD with the mission to help women anywhere along their breast cancer journey to truly heal. Dr. Jen intends to change the impact of breast cancer by empowering millions of women to take control of their health and create the life they want. She hosts her weekly podcast, Keeping Abreast with Dr. Jen, and is the host of the upcoming Breast Cancer Breakthrough Summit and the author of The Smart Person's Guide to Breast Cancer. She's currently opening Perfection Breast Imaging Centers throughout this country where women can have an access to revolutionary imaging technique and can safely, painlessly, and accurately screen for breast cancer. Dr. Jen's a motivational speaker, a frequent podcast guest, and also maintains her private practice, RealMD, anchored the online course, My Answer to Breast Cancer, is a two-time summit host, has extensive TV and live speaking experiences, and is a wife, mother, grandmother, dog lover, athlete, and friend. Woo, you go, girl. Welcome. <laughs> oh, my God. So, like, it. I'm so deeply cringing right now. Like, no, I, I think so when people read your bio, it. you're like, oh, God. I know. I know, but at the same time, it's like like being a wife and a grandmother, like doing all these things and going through medical school. Like I, I know it's hard. So we need to celebrate each other. Like we yeah, were just talking about your speaking activity. And I was like, woo, I'm so happy for you. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So it just exciting. feels, you know, it just feels oh. a little braggadocious. No, no, because I'm saying it, I'm introducing you. So, <laughs> so it's fine. Well, so if my listeners don't know about you, I'm so excited to introduce them to you. And can you tell us about your story? Because this happens a lot. I have friends who are doctors and then they go through cancer diagnosis. And a lot of them don't wake up though, but a lot of doctors wake up and that is what pushes them towards yeah. getting real answers. Yeah. We, I mean, you know, like so many people in my position who are woke to this space, I have a pain to purpose mission. So my breast cancer story started long, long, long ago, right? In, in a faraway land a long, long time ago. Uh, I was, for all intents and purposes, born into a breast cancer family where virtually everyone in my family got breast cancer and the vast majority of those women died of breast cancer. And there was a very special person in my life as a child. My hero was my first cousin. Her name was Linda Creed. She was a singer-songwriter in the 1970s and 1980s. 
She wrote all the music for the spinners and the stylistics. I'm dating myself, so many people won't know what that means. But if you're from Philadelphia and you know Motown, you know who that is. She wrote 54 hits in all. Wow. And her most famous song was The Greatest Love of All. So she wrote that song in 1977 as the title track to the movie The Greatest starring Muhammad Ali, but it really received its acclaim in March of 1986 when Whitney Houston would release that song to the world. Mm -hmm. And at that time, it would spend 14 weeks at the top of the charts. Only Linda would never know. Because Linda died of metastatic breast cancer just one month after Whitney had released that song. My hero died when I was 16. Mm -hmm. And... Her life and ultimately her death gave birth to my life's purpose. And so I did the only thing I knew how to do. I became a doctor. I became a surgeon. I became the first fellowship-trained breast surgeon in Philadelphia, the first oncoplastic breast surgeon in Philadelphia. And I did that for a really long time, and I did it really well. And I really thought that I was helping people. Right. I thought that I was taking women from a disease state and healing them. And I was about 15 or so years into my own career and at the top of my game and running the cancer program for my hospital. And I'm a wife and a mother and an athlete and a a stepmother and a philanthropist and you know I have all these balls in the air and I'm burning my proverbial candle at both ends and I think that I'm invincible mm-hmm. and one day I went from being probably one of the most high functioning people you've ever met mm-hmm. to not being able to walk across the room mm-hmm. because I didn't have the breath in my body and I had three days of intensive workups because, you know, that's what happens when you're a high ranking person in a hospital system is they try to figure out what's wrong with their moneymaker really fast. Right. And, um, and three days later, I find myself sitting in the office of my physician and colleague and friend. And he tells me that I need chemo surgery, radiation. I'm going to be on lifelong medication. And I appreciate the irony. I mean, Mm -hmm. these are things that I say all day, every day to people without hesitation or reservation. But when these words are coming at you, it has a whole different meaning. Mm -hmm. And it was really my first time, my first experience as a patient. I had Mm -hmm. never been sick before. Mm-hmm. And I still can't tell you what made me walk out of that office that day and refuse treatment. But there was something inside of me, God, universe, I don't know. But there was something inside of me that said that there's more and go look for it. Mm-hmm. And I did. Yeah. So the first thing I did was, you know, this was 2017, and I think it it was a different world then. And I did what I told everyone never to do, and I went to Dr. Google. Do not go to Dr. Google now. Dr. Google is a liar and sucks. But then you could find more truth. 
And in any event, on Dr. Google, I saw the same theme. Diet, 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 diet. What you eat matters. And as a traditionally trained physician, I, I think that's the wrong word. Let's call it conventional because traditional medicine is, you know, the medicine of the East and uh, far more sophisticated than what we're doing right now. <laughs> um, so, you know, as a conventionally trained physician, I had almost no training in nutrition. Right. We had 15 hours in our first year of medical school and then never again. So just to give you some perspective, medical school is four years. I did a surgery residency. That's five years. I did a fellowship. That's an additional year. So we're talking about 10 years of higher education of which they thought 15 hours was the appropriate amount of time to teach us what we needed to know about nutrition. So I decided that I would start there and I enroll in a certificate training, a coaching program called the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, IIN. And I'm doing it really reluctantly and kind of, you know, saying to them, are you sure I'm going to learn something? I'm a physician. And yes, yes, yes. We're sure you're going to learn. We're sure you're going to learn. So I'm sitting in one of the very first talks and a man named Mark Hyman walks on the stage. Now this is 2017. I think a lot of people know who Mark Hyman is now. Not everyone, but a lot of people. In 2017, a lot of people did not know who Mark Hyman was, myself included. So here's this like lanky guy with this toothy grin walking on the stage and smiles and he introduces himself as a functional medicine physician. Now at this point, I'm a doctor for 20 years. I'm like, there's no such thing as a functional medicine physician. What is this quack talking about? And then I remember that I was sick and that I was there for a reason. So I checked my ego at the door and I shut up and I listened and thank God I did. Because everything that he was saying was what I needed to hear right then. Mm -hmm. Because we're doing it wrong. Yeah. And anyone who has seen both sides of it knows that we're doing it wrong. And not only was he forecasting how I was going to get my health back, but he was also forecasting what was to become of me in my future. Because while I set out in the beginning to materially change the breast cancer experience for as many women as I can and to give them their health back and prevent them from having to suffer like my family suffered, like our community suffered, that wasn't what I was doing in surgery. Because in surgery and in conventional medicine, especially in the area of breast cancer, well, in the area of cancer in general, all the focus is on the tumor, killing the tumor, fighting the tumor, beating the tumor, conquering the tumor. The tumor's not the problem. The tumor's the symptom of the problem. And so when we focus on the tumor and killing, we are really only taking that person that is already saying that they're sick right? I'm showing you I'm sick. I have breast cancer. I'm sick. We're taking that person and we're making them sicker. So maybe it's not 
breast cancer that comes back in five, 10, 15, or 20 years, but it's going to be some other manifestation of the why they got breast cancer in the first place. And so this was really my first opportunity to see the downfalls of our medical system, to see that I needed a total shift if I was going to recapture my health. And then I needed a total shift if I was really going to live in in integrity and I was really going to meet those goals that I set out on all those years ago. Yes, absolutely. Said it so beautifully. Once you are on the other side, you see how broken it is. Yeah, I had a similar experience with my Hashimoto's and I remember crying in the endocrinologist's office and like, why won't you listen to me? I need T3. I don't feel the same, you know, after my partial removal. So I, and, but I think it's great to have both sides because you can, you know, yeah, we're going to talk about imaging, you know, later on and you know, what works and what doesn't because you've, you've lived both. So what exactly is breast cancer? So there's such a, that's such a great question because I feel like we throw that topic around so much. And so few people really know what it means. So um, in, in the sense that people can like think about it and picture it, breast cancer is just the uncontrolled growth of breast cells in the breast. And when these cells grow uncontrollably, sometimes they have behavior that allows them not only to grow in the breast, but to access the bloodstream or access the lymphatic system and therefore travel throughout the body. But what we need to understand on a deeper level is that breast cancer is a normal response to an abnormal environment. And so what happens is, you know, when we are going through living our lives, we are exposed to so many toxins. Some of them we can see, some of them we can't. Some of them we can appreciate, some of them we can't. So as we continue to build up these toxins, when we think about the breast, the breast is made up of four tissues. So it's made up of glandular tissue. That's the one that produces milk. It's made up of fat. It's made up of connective tissue that holds everything together. And it's contained in a skin envelope. So as we build up the toxins, because we store all of our toxins in fat, as we store up these toxins, think about the fat in the breast holding these toxins, and they are a neighbor of these glandular cells. So they're caused, they're in contact, and they're essentially causing direct damage to the cells. Yeah. So we have these cells that undergo damage. And if that was all that happened, it would be okay. Because the truth is that we have tons of repair mechanisms that are built in that are supposed to recognize those damaged cells in their infancy and destroy them. But that's our immune system. Our immune system is so challenged by by the way that we are living our life 
that the immune system can't keep up with everything that it's exposed to. Our immune systems are exhausted. And it's the combination of the damaged cells from all the toxins in our environment and an immune system that can't recognize these processes in their infancy. And all of a sudden, the tumor can grow. So, you know, that's kind of the bad news. The good news is that the same way that we can change our environment to one that's toxic, we can also change it to one that's not. Mm -hmm. And what we all need to focus on is not being in stress chemistry, not being in stress state, but being in the, the chemistry of joy. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, health happens. So we have so much control. There are things that we're not going to be able to control, but there is a lot that we can do to both prevent breast cancer and reverse breast cancer. But you have to be pretty dialed in to do it. And there is no scenario where the solution is cutting or drugging or burning. There just isn't. Right. And that's what everyone knows. And we don't look at prevention when it comes to breast cancer. We just look at that treatment. Well, I mean, that makes money. (laughs) Like you were saying, you were a big money maker for the hospital. Surgeries make lots of money for the Mm -hmm. hospital. And that's sometimes, you know, my patients come to me and they're like, oh, I went to the orthopedic surgeon or I went to this surgeon and they recommended surgery. I'm like, that's what they're going to recommend because they're surgeons, you know, anyway. Right. Yeah. So So people told me all the time, like I went to go see the medical oncologist and she recommended chemotherapy. (laughs) Well, of course she did. That's her job. That is her job. And she is doing her job and she's probably doing it pretty well because that is exactly what she was trained to do. And the radiation oncologist, same thing. Go to the radiation oncologist. They said I needed radiation. Of course they did. That's their job. And so we have to understand this. And it's not their job is to think outside of the box. Yeah. And they do, they do a great job following Mm -hmm. protocols, following studies, but studies lag 10 to 20 years around what really is going on in the world. And then studies are funded by drug companies, Mm -hmm. chemo companies. So I think this is so confusing for people though, because, you know, and especially in my integrative office, I see a lot of post-breast cancer patients and, you know, it's like this juggling because I I do what I can, but when it comes to hormones, it's so difficult because their oncology, their oncologist, the oncology team freak out when we talk about hormones. One, they freak out when we talk about, you know, or ask questions, why are they getting this imaging that's putting radiation into their breast? And it's just, it's a lose-lose situation for the patient. Yeah. And that's for why the I patient. Like, It's a very, very difficult situation for the patient, for sure. For sure. Well, let's let's talk about estrogen dominance. Uh, That term is thrown around a lot, and it's correlated with breast cancer and the growth of breast cells a little bit. So can we talk a little bit about estrogen dominance and how that relates to breast cancer? Yeah. So I, I think when we talk about estrogen dominance, we're talking about a constellation of symptoms that people are suffering from. But let's let's more importantly look at what's happening on the physiologic level. Like 
if you have symptoms of hormone imbalance and it doesn't it doesn't matter what what name you give to them we need to figure out why is that happening so there are any number of reasons why you could not have hormone balance the least likely is that your body just makes too much estrogen like that that is really not what's happening you may be making a lot of estrogen because you're overweight and then fixing that is the problem, right? You may have an imbalance because the estrogen alone isn't really the issue. It's the ratio of estrogen to progesterone that is the issue. And you may just not be making enough progesterone and that's the issue and we need to ask why. Um, you may make the right amount of hormones and not be getting rid of them effectively. And so you're just reabsorbing them again and again and again into your system. And the hormones aren't the issue. The gut is the issue. And so I, I, I don't like to use that umbrella term because it's meaningless to me, just like you have breast cancer is meaningless to me because your breast cancer is going to be different than someone else's breast cancer and it's going to be different than someone else's breast cancer because what the cells look like under the microscope to me is irrelevant. What I want to know is what got you here? Why do you have this imbalance happening in your system. And for everyone, it's different. And so if you have hormone imbalance and you have whatever symptoms you have, you have heavy periods, you have uncomfortable periods, you have um, cysts on your ovary, you have acne, you have headaches, you have um, hair loss, you have excessive hair, you eat like there are a whole host of, you have infertility, like there are a whole host of things that lead up to you have breast cancer. And adding birth control pills into that scenario is never a solution. And yet I see it time and time and time and time and time again. Yeah. It's so cringy when People are put on birth control to regulate mm -hmm. their cycle. I mean, they, I was put on birth control to regulate my cycle. Mm -hmm. And my mom read in some magazine, oh, if there's problems with your cycle, have your kid's thyroid checked. So that started my whole thyroid path, which was mismanaged and a mess. But yeah, the birth control, it's not estrogen. It's its conjugated equine estrogen. It's, it's not estradiol. It's right. not it's estriol. Synthetic. It's yeah. synthetic. And I think that people aren't told that. I know when I no, still work, not. Yeah, I'll still work in the ER and I'll be like talking to someone, you know, I do like mini integrative medicine consults because I can't help myself because someone's in there with horrible cramps. They were put on birth control for the cramps. Now they have acne and depression. I'm like, did anyone give you informed consent about the birth control pill? And they're like, no. And What's sad is when people are on it and it's not for birth control, right? I mean, how often do we see that? Yeah, uh, I, all the time, all the oh, time. Cycle regulation, acne, oh, yeah. headaches. Yeah. Yes. What about when women, like I just saw a patient who is on a conjugated estrogen, you know, synthetic estrogen, 
she was like late forties, not had her uterus, not on any progesterone. And I was just like, what is going on? And this is like, her OB thought it was good. Be like, oh, this will just control your symptoms until you get menopausal. And I'm like, this is dangerous. So, I mean, she's off of it. She stopped right after the appointment. Yeah. And actually I would, um, I would argue that even women with out a uterus right. should get progesterone. Absolutely. We all need it. Just yeah, on, we all but, need it. But it needs to be given correctly, you know, work with a functional sure. doctor. For sure. Because, you know, also, I, I don't know if you see, but I see a lot of just crazy stuff going on in the, in the other world, you know, yes. in the coaching world. So yes, definitely have to be careful out there. But yes. Synthetic I agree hormone. with all of that. Synthetic, but hormone. Synth- synthetic hormone is not good for anyone. Yeah. And, but even with that, even with that, if we look at um, where the, the study that most people quote, which has been debunked, but even when we look at the, the Women's Health Initiative, where the original intent of the study was to see if Hormone replacement was cardioprotective, meaning that did it protect the heart against accelerated heart disease? Because we know that women in the first 10 years after menopause actually go from the heart protected state that estrogen provides to having the same risk factors as men in that 10 years. We really accelerate heart disease in that 10 years. So that's what the Women's Health Initiative initially set out to determine. And one of the secondary endpoints was, does it cause breast cancer? Does it protect against dementia? Does it protect against osteoporosis? Unfortunately, the study was designed very poorly. And because it was a billion-dollar study, it will never be done again. But the average age of the women in the study was 63. The average age of menopause in this country is 52. So we looked at a population which already had the damage, the damage was done, and then we said it doesn't protect. In any event, what we did learn from that study is originally the reason that the study was halted early is because they said that the hormones, the hormone replacement that the women were given caused breast cancer, that there was an increased incidence of breast cancer in that group. And as it turns out, that increased incidence was not statistically significant, meaning that it could have just happened by chance. And there was not a meaningful percentage of women who got breast cancer in that study. And the more important thing to note was that The women that did get breast cancer and were on hormone replacement actually did better and had better prognoses than the women who weren't. So there's a lot of unlearning that we all need to do. Uh, People are very afraid of hormones, but I want to be clear. Estrogen does not cause breast cancer. It's an absurd concept. Right. If estrogen caused breast cancer, that would mean that we were all born into this world and put here by God to get breast cancer. How on earth could that be true? It's just a ridiculous notion. If estrogen caused breast cancer, 
why do we see the vast majority of breast cancers in the postmenopausal population when estrogen is not even measurable? Right, right. If estrogen caused breast cancer, when we are pregnant, we have 10 times the amount of estrogen circulating in our bodies. Why don't we get breast cancer then? Breast cancer in pregnancy is very rare. So estrogen does not cause breast cancer. It's a ridiculous notion. Now, do the synthetic estrogens cause replicative damage? Yeah, for sure they do because they don't act like our estrogen. They, they hang on to the receptor longer. They are, they are more stimulatory and we don't detox them as well. Mm-hmm. We don't detox them as well. We have a number of ways that we detox our estrogen. And that one is primarily detoxed down our least safe pathway. And so there are a number of opportunities for birth control pills or synthetic estrogens to cause problems along the way. And they do. Yeah. And they do. And we know from the Danish study that. Um, birth control pills have a linear relationship with the development of breast cancer, but we don't have um, bioidentical information in the premenopausal population. In the perimenopausal population, we do, but not in the premenopausal. There is no birth control pill currently that's being made with bioidentical hormones. So, you know, for now, I tell people, unless you really have no other choice, not to use synthetic hormones. There's really no reason for it. Um, And I don't think it exponentially increases your risk. But in this day, day and age, when we are surrounded by all of these xenoestrogens, these these environmental estrogens that look like estrogen to our body, but are far more potent and far more damaging. Why, when we're already at a loss for trying to escape all of these xenoestrogens in our environment, why would we voluntarily add another one in? Right. And so I really tell people to try to avoid that. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Yeah. Oh, no. And it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be prescribed. I mean, I, you know, coming from, from my situation, you know, believing in medicine and pharmaceuticals and all of that. And, you know, we're on, we're like kind of groomed in medical school and I'm like, oh, I'm on birth control to regulate my period. And, oh man, I just, it makes me so mad because now I know my estrogen metabolism. I go kind of hard down the two methoxy pathway and the four methoxy too, but now I need to even be cleaner or be more conscious of my choices. And I think that's the biggest take-home point is you are in control of your health. You are in control of preventing breast cancer, which affects one in eight women. I mean, you're in control of that and no one's telling you that. They're all just like, oh yeah, like you need to detect breast cancer so then we can treat it with drugs. And then you can be off estrogen the rest of your life and have memory problems and have heart disease. Oh wait, but the American Heart Association will come in and talk about like 
you know, heart disease prevention for women, but they're not talking about estrogen. It's, it's so backwards. So that's almost like what I tell my kids, like you have to follow the money. Yeah. If there's a shiny light, if there's a character on the package of the cereal, stay away. Right. So that's a real, that's really good advice. Yeah. We just like, like Dr. Jen said, like you follow the money and, you know, even, you know, they're getting really smart, you know, with celebrities and football players promoting certain things. Oh, yes. Yeah. We, we have to be very, very careful. Um, Yes. Yeah. So let's get into screening. I am yeah. super excited to talk to you about this. I, yeah. I did a post about how just how mammograms, like any radiation to a cell increases, um, you know, cancer replication, you know, you can't argue that. And people were arguing that mammograms aren't radiation into the breast. And from my understanding, when I think about this logically from a scientific, you know, brain from being a doctor, why are we doing mammogram prevention at age 40 when that is when you're in perimenopause and your estrogen ratios are fluctuating and estrogen is growth. So if you're getting your mammogram during one of those fluctuations, to me, it just doesn't make sense. So I am 42. I will get thermograms. I'm still breastfeeding. So I I can't, I can't get mammograms or thermograms, even if I wanted to right now, but once I'm done with my breastfeeding journey, I'm getting thermograms to start. Cause that's really I'm, all I'm going to change your mind after. Yeah, today, I, but... Well, that's why I want to hear about what you, yeah. what yeah. you have to offer because in Northwest Ohio, we have ultrasounds and thermograms. That's really all we have right now. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but that will, that will change. Yes. Um, first of all, I'm going to give a plug to Megan Smith. Her documentary "Boobs" uh, oh, is okay. is well worth watching. I will put that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's called like "Boobs" the documentary. Don't Google "boobs" because you are <laughs> not going to be happy with what comes up. Or around children. <laughs> I mean, maybe some people do want to. So what? Just. Google Megan Smith documentary boobs and or then boob, boobs the documentary and then that will that will pop right up. <laughs> okay. Yeah, boobs the documentary. Remember to put the documentary in there. Yes. So, um, you know, let's start with breast cancer is big business, mm-hmm. big business. So, no one is looking for that to go away anytime soon. And the fact that people think about that there are people in labs trying to cure cancer, I'm sorry, this is the really cynical side of me. There is no pharmaceutical company that has a goal of curing cancer. It doesn't exist. The things that you talked about where the um, the American Society of Cardiology is um, not talking about estrogen. They don't want to talk about estrogen because they are being paid by the pharmaceutical companies to sell statins and beta blockers and ACE inhibitors. And, you know, it goes on and on. And part of that um, Women's Health Initiative study, one of the uh, position statements that came out of that study was we are looking to end the runaway train of hormone replacement. And why would we use hormone replacement when we have better options like bisphosphonates for your bones, like antidepressants, like 
um, statins and beta blockers. So we have to think about where their mind was. And that is still where, you know, physicians, not intentionally, but physicians are tied way, way, way too closely to industry. And so why use one solution, hormone replacement, when you can use four or five or six? Because that's what's happening, right? That's what's happening. If women aren't on hormone replacement, they're osteoporotic, they have lipid problems, they have heart rate problems, they're depressed, they have brain fog, they have arthritis. It goes on and on and on. I don't have to tell you. Um, and so, you know, we have to really think about and consider where these sources are coming from. So there is no greater, um, example than the mammogram industry. So you notice that they did not call it the breast x-ray, right? Mm -hmm. Because they don't want people to know that they're getting an x-ray. Right. So they gave it a beautiful name. You're going to have a mammogram going to be fine. There's no damage here. Mm -hmm. You'll hear lots of experts say, you know, radiologists say, you get the same radiation flying across the country. Are you going to stop flying across the country? Now, when you fly across the country, that radiation that you are surrounded by, and I'm not denying that it's there, it's there, right? I know that there's electromagnetic field around me and that I am getting exposed to radiation, but that radiation I'm getting diffuse exposure to. Right. You take that same amount of low energy radiation and you compress the breast. So you're causing trauma at the same time, right? So you're already inciting an inflammatory situation. Mm -hmm. And then you're putting all of that radiation into the focusing them in the tissues of the breast. And with low energy radiation, what that means is 100% comes in and only a percentage comes out, somewhere between 40 to 60%, which means that somewhere between 40 to 60% of that radiation is being retained in the tissues of the breast. We know that every single physician will say, well, you'll ask that physician, does radiation cause cancer? A hundred percent of physicians will say yes. And then you ask them, do mammograms cause cancer? And they will say no. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. It's and there's, ridiculous. and there's studies that show if you have, you know, trauma to the breast, that increases risk of breast cancer and x-rays as children, chest x-rays, you know, and some of these, some of these ERs and urgent cares, they just pan scan everyone. And it's like, you're increasing risk of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So we, oh gosh, it's so, you know, and there's medical malpractice that goes in there. Right. But it's like, first do no harm and provide informed consent. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I know everyone's scared of missing breast cancer, but we have to talk about the risk and benefits. And I don't think women are given that at all. But and when, I think it's offensive. <laughs> like, when we look at the head-to-head -head studies of the women who screen and the women who don't, and these are studies of women who have the same access to treatment and care afterwards. So it's not like the women who don't screen don't have access to care afterwards. These are the same populations with the same access to the same care 
when we look at the women who screen and the women who don't, there is absolutely no survival advantage to screening. Mm-hmm. No survival advantage. There's no difference between the two groups. Now, do, do the groups that screen find more cancers? For sure. And those women undergo treatment for those cancers. But they are the women who screen are doing just as well as the women who don't. So why would you go through that? Mm-hmm. No matter how many women we screen every year, the exact same number of women die of breast cancer, exactly the same. Mm-hmm. No matter how many women we screen each year, we see the exact same number of aggressive breast cancers. Mm-hmm. We are not impacting the bottom line. Are we picking up more cancers? Yes, for sure. Are we treating more cancers? Yes. Are we treating a lot of cancers that do not need to be treated? A hundred percent. hundred percent. So people say to me all the time, well, how do you know what needs to be treated and what doesn't? Because like, you know, I'm scared that I, I, I'm scared to not get treatment. I, 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 I want to be able to know. Yeah. And for years we didn't, we didn't have a way of knowing. But um, I was so fortunate about a year ago to meet a man named John Clock. So Dr. Clock is, his background is as a medical oncologist. And um, I think he ran the Department of Medical Oncology at USC for many, many years. And he's just an inventor. Like he's I think he had his first invention at like seven or eight or something like that. And he invented a number of things like the calcium score, the cardiac calcium score, like the virtual colonoscopy for the person that doesn't want to undergo actual colonoscopy. There is a CAT scan that can do the same thing. And um, the NIH tapped him on the shoulder about, 12 years ago and said, listen, MRI is the definitive test for the breast, but MRIs are expensive. They're not readily available. There are, um, you know, places all around the world where they don't even have MR. There are places around our country where people don't have access to MR. And it's just not a tool that's appropriate for screening, not Mm -hmm. to mention that it uses gadolinium, which is a heavy metal, which is building up in the body. And there are many countries around the world that have abandoned using gadolinium because we know that there are long-term sequelae because anything that you store in your body is being stored at the expense of something else. And that something else is something that you need that was intended to be there. So they give him a grant and they tell him to solve this problem and he solves it too well. Because what he comes up with not only will replace MRI, but it's poised to replace mammogram. Now, he can't say that because he works for the company and the FDA approval is contingent on him saying that this is not meant to replace mammogram, Mm. but it's going to replace mammogram. So this test is fast. It's safe affordable. It, uh, there's no radiation and it collects 200,000 times the data points of MRI and has 40 times the resolution of MRI. And this is the most interesting part of it. 
it's a functional test in that if you go have a QT scan and we see something, we can bring you back in 60 days and measure a doubling time. Mm. So cancers and certainly cancers that need to be treated have a doubling time of less than 100 days, whereas benign things or even cancers that don't need to be treated have longer doubling times. Mm -hmm. So if you have something with a 300-day doubling time, bye, see you next year, Mm -hmm. and we'll just continue to follow you. And then at your appointment next year, we'll measure a doubling time again and see if everything's stable, great. This also gives you the opportunity to know that you have something in your breast. Your, Your body is telling you, this isn't exactly working for me. And you have the opportunity to change because that's what this journey is about. Your body gives you signals. That's what these diagnoses are. They're messages. They're messages saying what you're doing is not working. Right. You know, a cancer isn't some foreign body, something else that you need to fight or get rid of. Your cancer is a part of you. And it's the part of you that's saying, this is not working for me. We need to change. Something needs to change. I'm hurting. Help me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one thing that people might not realize is we're all making cancer cells as we sit here. And then our body has protective measures to get rid of these. So it's not like, you know, we're all making mistakes in our DNA. You know, our body does amazing things and creates different cells every day, but sometimes they mess up, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I I love you talking about the doubling time and everything, because I think that there is such a panic when someone gets a cancer diagnosis, but, Mm -hmm. but wait, like, let's step back. Like, what is this telling us? And and this doesn't work for every type of cancer. You know, there's some really, really aggressive cancers, obviously that need taken out or need treatment, but we're talking about the breast and how some, some women I've seen friends that they've gotten breast cancer diagnosis and then, you know, they get a double mastectomy. They're on, um, tamoxifen for the rest of their life and their, their brains don't work the same. And then I wonder in 20 years when they're, you know, 50, 60, or if they're going to have a heart attack. So that's a, that's a legitimate concern, right? And, um, It is, so this kind of screening is not meant to do anything but replace this current method where we're, we're calling too many studies abnormal, mm-hmm. we're doing way too many biopsies, and you know these are not without their cost. They're emotional cost, they're painful, they, they're expensive, they mean more time out of your life and the emotional burden of having had a biopsy is not insignificant. So we're doing too many biopsies. We're definitely over-treating cancer. And once we over-treat, we are changing, materially changing that person's health forever. So you take someone with DCIS, ductal carcinoma in situ, And this is a non-invasive cancer. And we treat them like they're invasive cancers because 
it could develop into invasive cancer. So we're going to treat you just like you have invasive cancer. And they have surgery and they have radiation. They don't have chemotherapy, but they are, if they're hormone positive, they are offered all of these anti-hormonal treatments. And we're meant to have our hormones. We are meant to have our hormones. So now you take these women and you essentially impose menopause on them and their heart suffers, their brain suffers, their bones suffer, their joints suffer, their, their sexual health suffers, their mental health suffers, their acuity suffers, everything suffers. Mm-hmm. So women treated for breast cancer, whether or not it was invasive, are two to three times more likely to die of heart disease than women who weren't treated for breast cancer. And I understand that that's twofold. I understand that part of it is that unless you deal with why you got breast cancer, that inflammatory source is still there and can contribute to heart disease. But the other issue is that all of our treatments for breast cancer accelerate heart disease, Mm -hmm. right? Radiation directly accelerates heart disease. Maybe not so much with the... um, the cardiovascular disease, like the vessels of the breast, but it definitely thickens the heart and scars the heart. So people get cardiomyopathies. Um, And then all of the anti-hormonal treatments, they have significant effects because when you take away estrogen, estrogen protects the health of our blood vessels. Mm -hmm. So when you take away estrogen, you you are interfering with the health of the blood vessels. That's what the heart runs on. Right. Like, you know, you can only pull the tail of that tiger so many times. Right. And, so sorry. Yeah. Go where ahead. do we find this imaging? Yeah. Um, where and what, like, so it's called perfection. You said that's the, that's the name of my company and I okay. am opening up imaging centers all over this Beautiful. country. Okay. Um, but right now QT imaging, that is the name of the technology and They have um, two locations open in California right now. So if you're in California, you're very lucky. Scottsdale has a location. It's in the Vincere Cancer Center in Scottsdale, but anyone can go. You do not need a doctor referral. You can refer yourself. You don't need a prescription. And, um, you know, people ask me all the time, well, what if my doctor won't accept this as a screening test. Right. That I think is a big issue in the Midwest. Yeah. And so my question back is, why do you need your doctor to accept it? I mean, mm-hmm. listen, this is FDA approved technology. This isn't me saying, hey, there's a great new test that isn't FDA approved. Right. This this device has been given the first FDA approval in 50 years for Mm -hmm. breast screening, Mm -hmm. 50 years. And it's approved for the population that needs it most, the Mm -hmm. women with dense breasts. So that is 40% of premenopausal women and 25% of postmenopausal women. And in that population, mammogram will miss 40% of cancers in that group, Mm -hmm. miss them. And so there's no question in a head-to-head what is better, but at the same time, you're not subjecting yourself to radiation. 
every mammogram you get increases your risk of getting breast cancer because we are just storing that radiation over time. So the more mammograms you get, the higher your risk is of getting breast cancer. And, you know, we've been fed that line time and time again, mammograms save lives. And -hmm. it's just simply not true. We have to screen thousands of women to find one woman who we actually save with mammogram. And in the meantime, we're causing more cancers than lives we're saving. We're not doing the right thing. You talked about first do no harm. That means abandoning the mammographic screening program, which should have been abandoned many, many years ago. And it was very hard for me to talk about that prior to this imaging being available. And I understand it's not widely available yet. Trust me, have faith, it will be. But in the meantime, do not go have a mammogram. When we look at the statistics of the size of the tumor with people that get mammograms and get treated and had and their outcomes, and the size of the tumor of people who just find their own cancer on physical examination, we're talking about four to five millimeters difference. That's not going to change the stage. It's not going to change the outcome. It's not going to change any of that. So I don't think that anyone should be doing a screening mammogram. I want to be clear. I am not talking about diagnostic studies. Mm -hmm. If you feel something, then you are in a different category. This is not screening anymore. This is a diagnostic study. And if you feel something, you should go have it evaluated. You should. You need to feel comfortable and you need to make a plan. And that's going to happen by going to have a diagnostic workup. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think anyone should be doing screening mammograms. Now, there are other alternatives. I think you mentioned thermography. Thermography is great in that it does not utilize radiation. It is a heat signal. It's looking for a heat signal. But it is not a screening test for cancer in that what it finds is inflammation. Now, Mm -hmm. inflammation is a precursor to cancer for sure, but... The thermogram alone is not a reliable test. There are too many cancers that are too slow growing that will not have a heat signal. Mm-hmm. So I never recommend thermogram alone. Right. If you're going to have a thermogram, it has ultrasound. to be paired with an ultrasound. Okay. That was going to be my question. with an ultrasound. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and that's probably the best option for us that don't live in yes. Arizona or California um, is probably thermogram and ultrasound if you're looking for that screening. Because I think it's also shoved down our throats that we need screening, right? And, and yeah. what what's weird to me, in medical school, I was on this preventative task force for a student organization. And I was in charge of it. And one year I did breast cancer screening for like breast self self-exam as yeah. screening, yeah. you know, for, for women to start after their first period. And why, like, what's wrong with that? Like, why can't we talk about that? Right. Nothing. Well, it's just, it's crazy because it's not mentioned when October goes by and there's pink and mammograms and no one is talking about feeling, you know, doing your breast self-exam or, 
you know, going to your OB once a year and getting it. They do that. So that's good. Um, it's crazy to me, but okay. So back yeah. to thermogram, I get off schedule. I get off. Topic. Yeah. But I do want to say something about yeah. self-exam because I really, really believe in it because I think that no one is ever going to know your body better than you know your body. Mm-hmm. And so I think that everyone should be examining their breasts every month. And that means looking at them, looking for changes in the breast and you're looking for skin changes. You're looking for dimpling. You're looking, um, for redness, any nodules in your skin. You're raising your arms up over your head so that you can see if there's any dimpling, looking from the sides. And then you're gonna examine yourself. If you're small-breasted, you can probably do it uh, standing up. If you're larger-breasted, you're gonna wanna do it lying down. You're gonna raise your arm over your head and just go around your breast, you know, circumferentially like this. And you're going to use your fingertips because they're the most sensitive part of your hand. And you're just feeling for a bump in the road. You're just doing a radial exam, looking for a bump in the road. And if there's something there, you'll feel it. People complain all the time. My breasts are lumpy. I don't know what I'm feeling. You don't have to know what you're feeling. Just feel your breasts and know what your body feels like. And that way you'll know when there's a change. If you are premenopausal, if you're still getting your period, one week after your period starts is when you should examine yourself. If you're postmenopausal, just feel them on the first. Mm-hmm. But uh, I really, really believe in self-exam and being in touch with your own health and kind of owning that part. Yes, yes. Yeah. I love it. I, I feel like I could talk to you all day <laughs> about all this stuff because we're both fired up about it too. And mm-hmm. thank you so much for your time. Could you let everyone know where to find you, what social media you're most active on. Yeah. So you should follow me on Instagram. And I actually have a breast exam video, right? Pinned up to the top of my Instagram. So I'm Dr. Jen Simmons and my Jen has two N's. I have a Facebook group for anyone who is curious about breast cancer and wants to be in a group with like-minded women who are very empowered to take control of their health. And they're talking about all the ways that you can create health outside of conventional medicine. So that group is called Keeping Abreast with Dr. Jen. So that's my Facebook group. That is also the name of my podcast. So if you liked hearing this, please jump over and listen to my podcast, Keeping abreast with Dr. Jen. If you are anywhere along your breast cancer journey and you need some guidance, I wrote a book. It's called The Smart Person's Guide to Breast Cancer. The downloadable version is available now. The Smart Woman's Guide to Breast Cancer is coming out in two months. So look for that at Amazon and we'll give you the link to The Smart Person's Guide to Breast Cancer for people to download. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you for all all you're doing. (laughs) Yes. No, I love it. So it's so important to have a place where women going through this can go because they feel isolated. And especially in parts of the country that maybe people look at them like they're crazy if they were talking about not getting mammograms. Yeah. Yeah. Don't get mammograms. Yeah. There's so many better things to do (laughs) and not to put yourself in harm's way. Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Simmons. Appreciate you being here.
My pleasure. This podcast is created and hosted by Jen Flegar and is for informational purposes only. It is not medical advice. This podcast is for responsibility for adverse effects from use of information contained in this podcast. This podcast does not promote opinions of their guests of their own and does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests of the show or endorse any qualifications for the guests of this podcast. Guests may have financial disclosures. If you think you have a medical problem, consult your personal physician or team. Thank you for joining.